listening to Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. And we are in Ephesians chapter 2 today. And so if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open up to Ephesians 2. We're doing something a little different these first three weeks of 2014. We, it is our practice here to work through books of the Bible. And that's what we do 95% of the time. We just finished uh, working through First Peter. And um, in a couple weeks, we're going to start an Old Testament book. I think we're going to be in Genesis. And uh, we'll, we'll dive into that in a few weeks. But before... We do that, we thought it would be wise as a church to, at the beginning of this year, recalibrate and recast our, our vision for what our life together as a local church is all about. And we have been a church now, coming up in April, we'll have been a church for nine years. Nine years has absolute, absolutely flown by. I can't, um, I just can't, can't believe that it's been almost a decade that we've been a church starting out as just a small core group of people and renting out the schoolhouse up in Harris County and um, three and a half years ago moving into this building it's gone by like a blur and and so we over the past nine years as a church have really anchored ourselves in this 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 heartbeat of what we're all about as a church and these three words gospel community and mission really anchor us and so last week we looked at the gospel, and this week we're going to look at what the gospel does. The gospel is what God does in Christ to form us as a people through Jesus' work on the cross, and he puts us into a community called the local church. That's what we are today. We are in this, in this setting here, a local church of people who are rugged and um, beaten down with life, still dealing with sin. Listen, maybe you're a visitor here today and you might think that the person next to you or down the row sort of has it together. They don't. I know them. They don't. And you may think that, that I have it together. Listen, I know me and I don't. Like we are a, a pardoned group of rebels who are taking God's side against our sin. There's nothing polished about us. We, we, are, we, we have scabs on our elbows and our knees, and we've got dirt underneath our fingernails, and we are here in this room today and through the week desiring to be a, a, a representation of the body of Christ. And that's what we're going to look at today is community. And then the third word is mission, that God doesn't save us and then put us together in his body, the church, to sort of be there for ourselves, but he sends us out on mission to be a display of the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. And so this morning we're going to drill down on this, this idea of what it means to be a local church. And so to do that, I thought we'd use as our launching off point Ephesians chapter 2. Now it is our practice here, as I mentioned, to just work through passages of scripture we're not going to do that today. Today is going to be a little bit more topical in nature. And so we're going to read Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. And then we're going to make a few points out of that text. And then we're going to settle down on what I think are five essential aspects of being a community founded on the gospel and on mission. And we're going to, we're going to be all over the Bible today. And so you may I just want to take notes and look up these scriptures later on in the afternoon. But let me read from Ephesians chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 19. Now, I think Ephesians 2 is one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. It is just a beautiful exposition of the gospel. The first 10 verses are what God does in Christ to make us alive, to take people who are dead in their sins, and to bring them back to life so that they can have faith and look to Jesus and repentance so that they can look away from their sin and live a life of God-glorifying worship to Him. And then the rest of Ephesians 2 is this great grand purpose of how God takes, in this instance, Paul is writing about Jews and Gentiles, and he has made these two people that at once were enemies against each other, and he's brought them together as one new man. 
And so the consequences of the gospel is that he puts us in a family. He takes people who would never otherwise love each other and serve each other, and he puts them together in a family to now be a display of his saving grace to an onlooking world. And so as a consequence of the gospel then is this beautiful community, the family of God, the church. So let me read in Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand these words and understand the other scriptures that we'll read together this morning and that God would give us a clearer vision of what it means to be a local church and that God would produce in us a love for his bride, the church, and for one another. Well, let me pray. Well, Father, as we, as we read your word and as we prepare to think deeply about what it means to be your people, saved by Jesus' work on the cross and not our own merit, but by Jesus, and then to be brought together as a family, and then to be a people on mission. Lord, I'm just so thankful for what you have done in this church, this little dusty group of people that started out as just a, a little small group in a living room and is now today what it is, sending teams out across the globe and ministering to children and preaching the gospel and caring for one another and being a light, imperfect, but nevertheless an ever-increasing, growing light of your glory to an onlooking world. Lord, help us. We are, we are prone to be self-absorbed individuals in our culture. And we need help. Many of us have have maybe been hurt in church previously, and now, regrettably, the loudest thing about us is some past bad experience. God, would you help heal those wounds so that the, so that the loudest note that plays in our life is your grace and your redemption and our place in the body of Christ on mission. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see Lord, would you encourage Christians? Lord, would you cause unbelievers that came into this room not trusting in Christ, would you give them a heart of faith and eyes to see this so that they can trust in Christ? And God, would you help me? Would you help me as I think about talking about your bride? I just feel a particular uh, inability. But yet, God, you are completely able. So would you help us? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think that this verse in Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, is just showing us a couple things. So before we get into five essentials for a life together as a local church, I want you to see a few things in this text. The first is, is what we talked about last week in the gospel in verse 19, that that. The gospel is the good news that God saves us and adopts us and places us into his family. It says there in verse 19 that we are no longer strangers and aliens. We were dead in our trespasses. We were foreigners. We were 
outside of God's people, but now we have been made God's people, not because he chose us because we were good looking or because we were better than anybody else or because we had a better understanding of anything, but solely because of his sovereign grace. And so in verse 19, we see the gospel that God makes a people and he puts them together as individuals. And then in verse 20, we see that the foundation of this family is Jesus. It says there in verse 20, that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And what Paul is getting at there is the gospel that the apostles and the prophets preached. And that gospel is the work of what Jesus has done. And so Jesus is he's like the bedrock he's the cornerstone he is the beginning the middle and the end he is the foundation his work and what he has done his perfect life his substitutionary death his victorious resurrection is what we are putting all of our hope in and what we are standing on as a church we're not here primarily because we're knitted together because we're americans or because we're southerners or because of some particular culture or some particular preference although those things are present and not unimportant but those are not the most important things that bring us together as a people we are white and black and brown and yellow and and some of us are from California and some of us are from the nation of Texas and some of us are Auburn fans and some of us are Alabama fans and some of us actually served in the Navy and we even let those people in some of us are army veterans, some of us are in the army, some of us are military, some of us are civilians, some of us, some of us like southern food, some of us like Mexican food. You see, the, all of these different preferences, some of us like music led by guitars, and some of us like music led by piano, and some of us like church done in this particular way, in that particular way, and all of those things are facets of life, but that's not primarily what brings us together. What brings us together is that we are people that were previously aliens to God and to each other, and we are now brought together by the gospel on the foundation of Jesus Christ, who is our chief cornerstone. And then finally, we can see there the purpose of what it means to be a Christian in community, in the local church, standing on the cornerstone of the gospel of Jesus' work, is that we have this peculiar and clear purpose together as a local church, that we are being joined together to grow together into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together in verse 22, so that we would be a, a house a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we exist, and we exist together as a local church for God, not the other way around, which I think is the default mentality of the average American, that God exists for us to give us a more fulfilling life. But we exist for God, to display the surpassing worth of God to an onlooking world. So, so here's a sentence that might, um, might help you. The church exists, re-exists, we exist, and this little local expression of the great grand universal church of God exists to put the gospel, the wisdom and the glory and the beauty of God and what he has done in Christ to save a people for himself. We exist to put the gospel on display to an onlooking world. By how we live together, how we actually treat each other and serve one another and interact with one another becomes a display, an evangelistic aroma to an onlooking world. So let me read to you from 1 Timothy. Don't flip there. Let me just read to you a, a beautiful picture of this in 1 Timothy 3. Paul writing to a young pastor in verse 14, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, the church, which is, listen to how Paul describes the church, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so what Paul is doing there is he's describing 
the church, and he's not talking about a physical building, but the people of God who become this spiritual household to be like a buttress, a pillar, holding up this truth of the beauty of God's saving work through Jesus Christ on the cross. So think of it this way. Think of, think of an engagement ring. Just recently, a young couple in Crosspoint was engaged, and um, there was a picture on Facebook. They shall remain nameless, but there was a picture on Facebook of the ring. And let's just say I'm glad that I'm 20 years after um, the uh, purchasing of a wedding ring because this, this wedding, I, I am going to ask the groom what bank he robbed for this ring. And I think you know who I'm talking about, brother. It's some sort of illegal activity that I'm looking at you right now. I won't mention your name. But it was a huge, beautiful diamond. And this diamond is being held up by these these prongs, right? Now, when you look at an engagement ring and you needed like the, the shades that like old people drive with in Florida just to look at this ring, lest, you, lest the brightness of it hurt your eyes. Nobody notices the prongs, right? Right? The little prongs that hold up the diamond. And that's what the local church is. Our life together, we, we're not here for ourselves to be noticed, to be, to be made much of. But we are like these little prongs that are holding up this beautiful splendor of the gospel. And so our life together ultimately doesn't dead end on us. It is just us to, to hold up. And how we live together and treat one another and serve one another becomes a display of the surpassing worth of Jesus to an onlooking world. So with that, let me start now with five essentials for life together as a local church. This list is not exhaustive. And as I said, if you're a visitor here today, usually we just preach through a text of scripture. And I would recommend if you're looking for a church that you look for a church that does that and not what I'm doing today. <laughs> but I think occasionally it's good for us to think about our life together and to do a more topical view of what it means to be a local church. So with that caveat, let me give you five essentials, some of them, not all of them, but five essentials that I think are particularly important for life together as a local church, specifically Crosspoint. The first is, is that we remember always to preach and teach the gospel and the good doctrine that flows from it. I know that may seem sort of elementary to you, and you're like, well, okay, I, I get that. But friends, there are many churches. In fact, maybe we could even see, a, say, a majority of the churches in America. I don't mean to be pessimistic, but maybe even a majority of the churches of America do not preach and teach the gospel and the good doctrine that flows out of it. For us, that means that we center our life together as a local church on the Bible, and that primarily what we want to do on a Sunday morning is to open up the book and to go through the scriptures because we think the Holy Spirit is wiser than we are. We don't start with an idea or a topic and then look at all of the things that, you know, the Bible says about that. But we look at books of the Bible and just work our way through this. We think that's the best and most helpful way to do it because it guards us from skipping difficult portions of Scripture. It forces preachers and teachers to actually explain what's in the text. And also, I am not so arrogant to think that you actually remember, remember any of the things that I say or some of the other preachers and teachers here say. In fact, I don't remember what I say just two weeks ago. Somebody, sometimes people will come up to me and say, oh, Brad, remember when you said that? And I'm like, no. I mean, I give, them, I give them the courtesy. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no. I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Maybe that was the Holy Spirit. 
But I think as we work through books of the Bible, we will remember what 1 Corinthians is about and what 1 Peter is about. And after we spend 14 months in Mark, we will be so much more familiar as a church with what the Gospel of Mark says. And so we want to open ourselves up to God's inspired word. The most important thing that we can do as a congregation to be a prong that holds up the beauty of the Gospel is not to water down the truth of the Gospel or what it means to be a Christian, but to clearly hold it up, to clearly hold it up and to passionately proclaim it to ourselves and to anybody that is joining us on that particular Sunday and to preach the good news of the gospel, to deliver God's word to God's people. That's what we need together as a people. Let me read to you a few scriptures. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13, Paul writes, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, and implicit in that he's talking about the preaching and the teaching of good doctrine, the gospel, the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so this holy, inspired, divine word of God, when we open it up and when we preach it and when we teach it and when we connect it all to Jesus' saving work, it works on our soul. And the most important thing we can do as a congregation to form our lives together is to, is to preach and teach the word and the good doctrine that flows from it. Now, friends, this is not to highlight um, my role here as a church. I actually think this is one way to guard the church from... from um, from a particular personality, because um, I'm, I'm, I'm not a particularly creative person, and the church shouldn't be driven by the main preacher's wisdom or creativity. It should be driven by the Word of God. And so I've been the, I've, this is the only church I've ever pastored. I've been pastoring it for nine years, by God's grace, I hope, Lord willing, to pastor this church until I ride off into the sunset. And my, like my dream would be, to um, pastor this church. I mean, maybe I'll become, like, I don't know, slap like an emeritus tag on me or something, but like late in my later years to be like preaching a sermon at Crosspoint in the middle of, you know, Romans or something and just drop dead of a heart attack right <laughs> in the middle. Would that not be a glorious way to go? And here's what would make it all the more awesome midway through the sermon, boom. And then like two young like pastoral interns drag me off. And then the next dude up, he's like, well, Brother Brad is with Jesus. Let's continue. Romans 8. <laughs> right? Because the word of God is central. Do you see that? And do not discount that us growing together as a group of people, don't discount the primacy of the Word of God. We are not here primarily to think about ways to have a better Tuesday or tips on how to have a better life or manage your anger or have a happier marriage. All of those things may be very important. And when we hold up the gospel and the good doctrine that flows from, of it, from it, we make application to all those areas of life. But when we turn the Bible on its end and make it a guidebook or a tip about how we should live life successfully, do you see what we do? We flip. We obscure the diamond and exalt in the prong. But that, that's not what we're to do here. A church, God's people, are to lift up Jesus and to tether all of their life, their marriages, their stewardship of their finances, their work throughout the week, their parenting, everything through the lens of what God has done in Christ so I can manage my money well and I can die to myself as a husband and I can parent in light of the gospel and the grace that he gives us because of what Jesus has done with my sin. And so we live a life as a congregation centered on the scriptures and the good doctrine that flows out of it. And it's based not on a man or a personality, 
that God may use those things as means of his grace, but it's based on the word of God. It's not based on cultural relevancy or self-help techniques, but it's based on the word of God. That's why if we were to ever start doing a whole bunch of topical messages here, I would recommend that you go to another church. Send us a message by sending us a rebuking email, and if we don't turn from our self-centeredness, go somewhere else. Essential number two. So preaching and teaching the gospel is a good doctrine that flows from it. It's something that we must do as our life together at the local church. Two is that we should pursue graciously meaningful membership as a means of God's grace. Now this, I know, is a sensitive area for people because we may be thinking, oh, well, Brad just wants and the pastor just wants people to sort of join the church so that they will have a, you know, a, a large number of people. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. That is not the case. And some other people might object and say, well, we don't see that we need to join a local church at anywhere in the Bible. Like there's no sentence or verse that says join a local church. Well, that, that's true. But I think that the idea of whatever you want to call it, we just use the phrase in English and in our culture of church membership, but the idea of covenanting, of submitting yourself to the authority and the life of a group of people, a congregation, I think is implied and implicit throughout the whole New Testament. Paul tells leaders to be responsible for the people that are under their care. How do they know who those people are unless there's some mechanism of, of commitment? We see in the New Testament where, where, where the apostles keep lists of people that need care. How do they know who, who they are supposed to care for in that way? We see, we see cases, and this is a sort of negative end of the example, but I think it's, it's clear and it's true. We see cases like in 1 Corinthians 5 where there's this man who has been part of the Corinthian church and he finds himself in unrepentant sin. He is having an immoral relationship with his father's wife, right? And so Paul tells the Corinthian church, this man who considers himself part of you and who you are allowing to stay in the sin, you need to put this man out of the church. Well, if there's something to be put out of, then there has to be something to put into. And he's saying, essentially, tell this man that he is no longer part of you so that you might hand him over to the world, to Satan, so that God might use the despair of being outside of the church as a means of grace to drive this man back to repentance. And so I think clearly implied in that is that there was this idea that the church knew who they were responsible for. We see in Hebrews chapter 13, this I think sobering verse that keeps me and the other pastors up at night. And it says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate, I'm sorry, where am I at here? Hebrews chapter 13, verse, thir- verse seven. Where am I at here? Um, uh, verse seven, yeah. Remember your leaders. Um, where am I? I have the wrong verse written down here. This is a first in the history of Crosspoint. <laughs> verse 17. Thank you, Reynolds. There. <laughs> verse 17. Hebrews 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I think one of the reasons committing yourself and being known by leaders and committing yourself to, we call it here, membership in a local church is so important is that leaders know who, you, who they are responsible for. You know that weekly, the pastors and elders and staff pray for the membership of the church. And some of you have been here for several years, and you're not, you're not yet a member of the church. May I submit to you that you're short-circuiting your ability to be served 
by a group of men who are responsible for your soul. Now, will those men fail you? Of course. I can think of people that are members of this church who we as shepherds and elders have not done the best job caring for, for whatever reason. But there's this mechanism, there's this list of people that have, that have submitted themselves to the life of a congregation. They've, they've gone to a pastor and elder. They said, this is how I became a Christian. And they've become part of the church and they've been affirmed by a congregation and now they have an imperfect, albeit an imperfect group of shepherds responsible for them caring for them. And if they just stop showing up, they have a group of people who are going to be thinking about them and praying about them and calling them and saying, hey, how are you? Again, we don't do that perfectly, but there's this idea that these are the group of people that we're actually responsible for. And so, so what happens if you, like, were to be kind of around a church and then you were to maybe fall into some sort of unrepentant sin. Do we think that that man that's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 is something that could never happen to us? But when we submit ourselves to the life of a local church, it becomes a means of God's protecting grace where you have invited a group of Christians into your life and you have given them authority and responsibility to keep you accountable and discipline you if necessary. And I realize this is a wildly unpopular theme in the American church because we are, are we not? I mean, it is, we, we are Americans. We're frontier people, right? We revolted against those snobby Brits because they were exerting authority over us too much. And so there's just something woven into the fabric of our DNA as a culture that resists any type of, of accountability and authority. But God has given the means of some sort of meaningful covenant relationship with a group of people to be a means of protecting grace in your life. You have leaders that keep watch over your soul. And then you have leaders that are there to protect and guide you doctrinally. Listen to this, listen to this scripture from 1 Timothy 4. Listen to what the elders and pastors are commanded to do for the congregations that they are responsible for. Paul says, command and teach these things. And he's talking about the gospel and the good doctrine that flows out of it. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Devote yourself to them so that all may see your progress. And listen to verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So part of the responsibility of the leaders, elders, pastors of a church is to guard the church doctrinally, to have a set, a confession, truths, that we say this is what the Bible says about God and his saving work in the world. And friends, not everything that's published, not everything that's put on TV, not everything that's sold in the Christian bookstore is in line with historic Christianity. And you have a built-in protective mechanism for the leaders of the church who are to guard you. Now, can leaders be wrong? Certainly. That's why we have a mutual accountable system where the church is led by elders, but ultimately the congregation has the final say of authority. And we can, we can err and we can not serve each other as well as we should, but there is this built-in mechanism when we commit to life together as members of the same household of God, the same church, that God uses it as means to protect us. I know the objection, and the objection is, and I want to be very sensitive to this, the objection is, is that I've been hurt in the past, and I don't want to go through that again. Maybe you came to Crosspoint because the church that you were a part of fell apart, and there was some bad, unbiblical abuse of authority, or there was no authority, and the sheep bit each other. You know, sheep can bite. And maybe there was no shepherd there to, to lead. And you know that you need to be around God's people, but you just would rather stay on the outskirts because of the pain. Friend, I, 
I, I can only imagine how difficult. It seems like pain and hurt in the body of Christ is a deeper sort of pain than, than others. I get that. But can I encourage you not to let some past experience be the loudest thing about you? Like, don't let, the fact, don't let that be the defining characteristic of your life. You know? It's like you walk into every room and there's just this sort of subconscious thing about you. You don't know what happened to me. And I, look, I, I understand that. But do you realize that how we just, when we posture ourselves like that, when we keep everybody at arm's length, then, then in that moment, we're, we're forgetting the gospel. And we're saying that, you know, Jesus, he, he can make things whole, but, but this one thing, man, this one thing, that one deal where 10 years ago I was really offended or I was treated poorly, I'm going to hold on to that thing and I'm not going to let anybody in because of that one thing. Friends, you short circuit, you short circuit the means of grace that God has given to heal you of that very thing and you keep yourself from the only thing that can truly heal that thing, which is the means of grace of the body of Christ and another imperfect group of people. Don't let yourself unwittingly adopt a subconscious victim status for the rest of your life. Maybe you've offended someone else. And maybe they need to move on as well. And maybe your experience and the grace that God has given you to work through your past pain is the very thing that somebody else in the church that you need to get to know and submit yourself to is the very thing that they need. Meaningful membership is a means of God's grace. The third thing that I think is essential for our life together is a culture of discipleship a culture of a group of people who are earnestly desiring to grow in God's grace for the glory of God and for each other's good. Now, I think there's several different ways churches implement this. Not, there's not several different ways. There's thousands of different ways that churches go about this. None of them are perfect. And the way we go about it here at Crosspoint certainly isn't perfect. But let me just give you a few mindsets that we think about when we think about discipleship and growing together as followers of Jesus. We think that the best way and most sustainable for it to, to do it is to make it as decentralized as possible and to be not so programmatic that we have a, a list of you know, things and programs that we do, but to make it organic. Ultimately, friends, a program isn't what we're after, but an environment of people wanting and desiring to do one another good so that we would help each other spiritually follow Jesus. And so we want to encourage this culture and we want to see that our gathering together on Sunday mornings and the preaching and teaching of the gospel is the beginning of discipleship and that from that flows this life together where Christians as they hear the word of God and as they are pushed on by the commands of the word of God to give their lives away in relationship with one another and to just be in a sort of rhythm of life where they gather and scatter and they live a life of trying to do one another good spiritually. Another thing I want us to think about is that I think we could just do better at, frankly, as a church, is this idea of cross-generational pouring out of our lives to one another. Ben read it this morning in Psalm 145. We're commanded that one generation should commend the works of God to another. In Titus chapter 2, we see Paul write about this culture of discipleship and growing in grace and transgenerational ministry in the life of the church in Titus chapter 2. Listen to this, Titus 2 verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Again, preach the gospel and all the good doctrine that flows out of it. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfast, steadfastness. Implicit there is that they're to be an example to the younger men. 
Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Who is he speaking to when he says urge the younger men to be self-controlled? Well, clearly Titus, the pastor, and the old men that are living as examples to these younger men. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And so Paul is painting this beautiful picture that there's older people serving younger people and younger people humbling themselves and listening to the experience of what the older generations have to say. I think there's two challenges to this, and I think one of the challenges is with young people and one of the challenges is with older people. I think that the challenge for young people and having this sort of cross-generational discipleship is that young people, young culture, are, I think, addicted to aesthetics. They're addicted to aesthetics. I mean, you, you can't receive anything unless it looks hip and cool. And you think that spiritual sometimes is like some blog that looks really awesome with good graphics. The content can be fluff, but the graphics were awesome, so what he or she says must be really cool. I'm assuming it's quiet right now because you're convicted. And if, it, you know, if the mood isn't right, right, in the colors, and everything doesn't have this sort of, you know, laid-back Starbucks feel to it, then, you know, we can't gain anything from it because it's not hip, man. That is, that's an obstacle. And you need to die to that. There are some old cats with worn-out clothes that don't dress hip, that don't speak your lingo that you could learn much from. And that's, a, that's, a, that's an obstacle to, to, to young generation. Likewise, I think sometimes older people are addicted to the form of their past experience. And so they were really blessed maybe a couple decades ago about doing the Christian life in a certain way with certain forms. And they are fearful about any change or any new form or any different paradigm. And as a result, we have two generations that kind of lob, you know, grenades at one another. And, and I think also probably we, because we read, because of internet and blogs and Facebook, we have this sort of unrealistic, almost lustful ideal of what community and life together should be. And so we sort of portray... This, that it's got to be really cool in the study or the meeting or meeting for coffee or just the relationship has to be like so rich and beautiful. But that, I don't have any relationships like that. Like I, I don't. I mean, they're all sort of awkward and strange. <laughs> right? I mean, I, like, I, the older I get, the more I realize how like awkward I am. Like how come I can't just have like like normal, sustainable relationships and conversations with people. There's always this, oh, oh what, is, what do they think? Oh, oh I'm such a dork. Oh, they're kind of weird. Oh, they have this habit. Oh, oh. But that's like, that's real life. Like, you know what I mean? And that's people, life on life. And there's this, we need to die to this idea of this aesthetic or past form of what we think it should look like and be people that just center our lives on committing ourselves to the gospel and to one another. So how does this work itself out at Crosspoint? Let's pick up the pace a little bit here. Just a few things. Again, imperfect implementation of trying to build a culture of discipleship that we think about. Just a few things about how this works out at Crosspoint. One is our gathered worship and expositional preaching. Do not minimize that, folks. That we want to open up the Bible and that, that the, one of the reasons we go through the scriptures like we do is because we think that as we work through the scriptures line by line, we're teaching each other how to read the scriptures and how to see the Christ of the scriptures and how to uh, apply everything to the gospel. And when we gather together and serve one another and when the members of the church take 
one Sunday out of every four or five or six to not prefer themselves, to, to prefer one another and to serve, say, in children's ministry or some other way. They are actually in their serving helping disciple others and discipling their own soul by not building out their church experience by their own preference. Do you see that? So literally how we gather together by prioritizing worship, by saying that, you know what, I'm just not going to be this person that once every, or, you know, two Sundays out of a month, I'm just doing this or doing that or prioritizing everything. I am going to not prefer myself and I am going to come into this family that I'm part of when we gather together and I'm going to have my head on a swivel looking for people that I might encourage and say hello to and meet and, and create collectively together this sort of corporate atmosphere of love and humility and service. So friends, do not discount that even how we gather together and then the centrality of the preached word, the effect that it has on conforming our souls into the image of Christ. In fact, I think it is the centerpiece of Christian discipleship. The people of God gathered and then things flow from that. We need much more than that, but that has to be there for healthy discipleship. Secondly, community groups. We want to break down into gathering together in one another's homes and serving one another. And again, this is not some beautiful you know, romantic ideal where everybody that gathers together in community, in a group, in a living room, on a weekly or every other week basis necessarily has some wonderful spiritual enlightenment. You know, maybe there's people, shockingly enough, that God intends to get us close to who are hard to love or a bit annoying. <laughs> and guess what? Maybe... You're a little hard to love and a little annoying. Just a thought. And maybe God intends to bring these people together and cause them to sort of rub on each other and grind on each other and be committed to one another and bear with one another for the transformation of their souls so that collectively they might display the surpassing worth of God. Do you see how simple it is? It's just these regular means of grace to gather, to lift up the word of God, to scatter, to serve one another. And then thirdly, something that we've imp implemented this last year and are doing, even started a new phase of that this morning, is theological education. We started it last year by going beyond just Sunday morning, which is vastly important and central to then getting into smaller groups and doing theological education and talking about doctrine and things that are important for Christians to know. So last year we did midweek fellowships and looked at very important pieces of doctrine and what the Bible says about God and various other things. And this morning we started a 12-week Sunday morning class, Parenting in Light of the Gospel and a look at redemption in the Old Testament. So we want to be people that aren't just about fluff, but go deep about deep theological education that we as people can learn and know so that we are encouraged and encounter the truths of Scripture and in an intentional way with qualified and capable teachers deliver more of God's content to more of God's people. And I'd encourage you to be part of those classes in the morning and then in the midweek fellowships when we start them here in the spring. And our goal there is to not just have them sort of unending like every Sunday morning throughout the year or every Wednesday night throughout the year, although some churches do that and it works out well for them. But we think a good rhythm of life for us here would be blocks, like 12-week blocks or eight-week blocks, and so that there's a rhythm so that, so that we can um, focus in on a particular topic and go deep on that issue and then break and then again start up in a, in a couple weeks and go deeper on another topic. Another way that this works itself out is informal Bible studies. And again, this is not something that um, we need to overly program, but we want people, men and women, to as they gather together in community for maybe a, a group of women in a community group to say, hey, let's go through 
a good Bible study together, it's good sound theological content, or a group of men to say, hey, let's, let's have a Bible study. And occasionally we do more formal Bible studies where we'll have a group of men or women in a study here in the building, but don't be limited to that, friends, that we want Christians meeting together, taking the initiative to look at God's scriptures, to meet with one another and to study God's word. And then finally, which flows from that, which I think just needs to be pervasive throughout the culture, is discipling relationships. Where if you have been a Christian for six weeks, you have something to say to somebody who just became a Christian last week. And if you've been a Christian for five years, you've got something to say to a Christian who's only been a Christian for two or three years. And we have this culture where we are always looking to engage people that have something to share with us, experience and maturity to share with us. And we're also looking to give our experiences and to do one another spiritual good. And so don't wait for a program or a sign-up sheet, but come make worshiping together with God's people a regular part of your life. Anchor that in your soul. Get in community. When you are able, come to these, to these classes and then find relationships. Take one another to lunch. Meet for coffee. Older couples, invite younger couples. Younger couples, seek out older couples. Have initiative. Push pack past awkwardness, overcome social barriers, and let's get into relationship. And as the church grows, we will be tremendously inefficient if we're waiting on a program all the time. What did Christians do before the over-organized American culture came along? They felt the weight of the scriptures, and they they let it push on them, and they took initiative, and they met with one another, and they did each other's spiritual good. And friends, none of this does any good unless there's personal desire for spiritual growth in Christ. All this means nothing. We can have great preaching, great teaching, great community groups, great theological education on Wednesday nights and Sunday morning. We'd have good Bible studies. We can have older men seeking out younger men. But none of this does any good if, if there's not just this sort of desire in our hearts to grow. My observation is that men, we tend to be much more passive or likely to be passive about our spiritual growth. We tend to just sort of fluff it off and it seems like to me generally, men tend to just kind of be okay with just kind of floating along. Why is that? I think it's spiritual warfare. I think that as the men go, so go the home. As the men go, so go the church. As the men go, so go the city. So goes the nation. So goes the world. It doesn't mean that God values men more than women, but God has given differing roles to men and women, and men are to be humble, Christ-like leaders. And when men don't pursue Christ, and growing in Christ, and they're just kind of okay with sort of attending, and not really growing in grace, it absolutely stunts the ability of the church to be an effective witness for the gospel. And men generally won't follow women who are pursuing Christ because it pushes them even further away because they're just feeling more beat up about how sorry they are. But very rarely have I ever seen a situation where a man is on fire for the Lord. He's humbling himself and he's desiring to grow in his relationship with Christ. He's submitting himself to relationship. He's joining the church. He's coming to stuff. He's reading his Bible. He's bringing it. He's like bringing his Bible. He's familiar with it. He's saying, no, honey, I know it's going to be difficult, but we're going, to, we're going to be part of a community group. We're going to let other people have authority in our lives. We're going to go to that class. We're going to do this thing. He, he rarely have ever seen a man who is sort of sticking a stake in the ground and leading and a wife who doesn't joyfully follow that. It's just the way God made it. But I've seen plenty 
of women whose heart is broken, who deeply desires for their family and her husband to take leadership, and she's earnest and soaking up as much of God's truth as she can, and her husband's an absolute bump on the log, and a man is seemingly, because I think of spiritual warfare, like more pushed away in guilt. And so what I'm saying in all that, men, is that if you will stick a stake in the ground and lead and open up your life and surround yourself with other men that can help you grow in grace, your world will begin to follow you. Your wife, your children will begin to follow. A culture of discipleship ultimately, though, must not dead end on us. You see, friends, good preaching, good classes, good community groups, good Bible studies, good discipling relationships ultimately don't exist for us but again, so that we might grow, so that how we live together, how we live out these scriptures might more clearly display the beauty of the gospel. Two more points and then I'm done. Point number four that I think is essential in our life together is a grace-driven patience for one another. A grace-driven patience. A gospel-centered culture is a place where it is okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay not okay. There's this grace that we have for one another, and we bear with one another's sin, and we're patient with one another. We're patient with our leaders, and leaders are patient with the people. A grace-driven love and patience for one another. And then finally, fifthly, I think I just made up a word, fifthly. A culture where we serve one another. Where we have our head on a swivel, as we like to say. To not make it so much about us coming and receiving and consuming, although that's certainly part of it. But that we lay down our lives for one another. That we're known that we're committed, that we're like yoking ourselves to this, this wagon, so to speak, of the church. And there are times when the straps that I'm yoking myself to are going to rub on me and I'm going to get blisters and it's going to be hard, but, but ultimately it's not about me. It's about me serving other people and caring for one another and to prefer one another and to lay down our lives and so when we have this culture of serving one another, do you see how this displays the gospel that we hold so dear, that Jesus, who served us, who laid down his life for us, then as we serve one another and as we're patient with one another and as we die to our preferences and as we submit to one another and as we're known, as we commit and we serve one another in formal and informal ways, it becomes a display of the gospel that we hold so dear. There's formal ways, there's informal ways. I think a great way to serve this church is to just come regularly, to move around, to greet people, to look for people that are new. A formal way would be to serve in children's ministry. One Sunday out of every five or six, you don't have to teach, you just can be there to help love on children, pray for them, be crowd control. But the more people that we have committed to this family, committed to serving families and serving one another's children, the less strain it is on the few people that, that many people, but the, the group of people that are serving. So there's many ways that we can serve one another. Caring for one another, looking for a military family to invite them to lunch, being part of a community group so that you get in a messy living room and you learn one another's needs and you begin to, as best you can, respond to those needs. And then collectively together, we become this beautiful display of God's grace that isn't there ultimately for ourselves, but is there to display the surpassing worth of Christ. Think of our life together as a local church as like being an embassy in a foreign, hostile country. And we live and work in this foreign, hostile country. But ultimately, we're not citizens of that hostile, foreign country. We're citizens of this outpost, this embassy. And the local church is to be like this light on a hill 
that doesn't exist for itself or to throw barbs at the culture or to look judgmentally at people outside of the gates of the embassy. But this local church and thousands of others like it are to be like these little embassies in a dark foreign land. And we are to integrate our lives in this foreign culture that we live in and constantly interacting with people and telling them, no, come and be a citizen of this land, this, this kingdom that is to come. And the doors to our gates are wide open and the windows are up and the sun shines brightly because we are trying to commend and compel people that are captives of this dark, hostile world to come like Come and be a true citizen of the kingdom that is to come, not the kingdom that is perishing. And our life together as a local church is to be like that, to display the surpassing worth of Jesus to a dead, dying world around us. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Lord, there's so, much, there's so much that we need to learn about being a, a healthy community and a gospel-centered people. And there's so much that you have already done. I am so thankful for the ways that you, that you have grown us in this area. I'm so thankful that in spite of um, my ignorance as a lead pastor and my naivete early on and still continuing that in spite of less than ideal leadership on my part, you have been kind to us. And I'm so thankful for the ways that you are growing us in this area. God, would you help us to be a people who do not just cherish the truth of the gospel, but that we that we display this beauty in how we live together. Lord, may an aroma just rise from this little band of pardoned rebels called Crosspoint, an aroma of Christ, a city set on a hill to an onlooking world that calls a dead, dying world around us to come and look and see and behold not the prongs of the ring, but the diamond that's holding up. Lord, would you do that? Would we be people that continually repent of self-absorption and continually fight to prefer one another and care for one another and commit to one another and serve one another? all for the glory of your name. Lord, I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name for your glory and our joy. Amen.